The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with our TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. How's it going? Pretty good. good. We were just talking about how this show is going to be full of spoilers, and we thought we should talk to you guys a little bit about this and what to expect from us going forward. Right. Well, to be clear, our goal is not to, like, rattle off a list of what happened. No, we're not the TV ruiners. <laughs> that wasn't the title of the show. Right. But I think to have a serious conversation about a show and then say, you know, when that thing happened yeah, doesn't help anyone. That's just lame. We can't do that. We're not going to do that. Just going into this show, assume that if we're talking about a show, we'll probably be alluding to things that have happened at any point in that show's run. Up Not just the... alluding, like acknowledging yeah. and discussing explicitly <laughs> talking about, exactly. about everything that's aired. So Matt and I would never spoil something that hasn't aired yet, no. um, even though sometimes we get screeners and see stuff in advance. So don't ever worry that if you're up to date on a show, you might still get spoiled. That's not on the table. But you should nevertheless practice an opt-in or opt-out scenario. If you're not caught up with, say, Empire, and we announced at the top of the podcast that we're going to be talking about that, probably better to skip that segment because we're not going to protect you. Right. We also... Matt and I both have, and Gazelle, we've all watched a lot of TV, and part of our vocabulary is going to be acknowledging sort of famous things on shows from the past. So if you don't want to know, I don't know, who Krecek is or something, you know, if you don't know how Lost ended. If who you don't killed know who Laura killed, Palmer. Yeah. Um, how to... the Sopranos ended. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, um, I was on Facebook the other day, and somehow the discussion turned to Psycho, and I mentioned the shower scene, and somebody said, spoiler. Right. That's I mean, like, it was 19-freaking-60. <laughs> I think once something has been parodied on The Simpsons, it's pretty fair game in culture. <laughs> <laughs> so if you yeah. still don't know who Rosebud is, you have a lot more pressing things to get through yes. than uh, this week's podcast. You have like a big cultural gap of stuff you need to fill in. But we love you. Don't feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. So with that said, first up, we'll be talking about Fox's new show from Will Forte, The Last Man on Earth which tries out the post-apocalypse format as a comedy. Then we'll hear from Last Man's co-executive producer, Andy Bobro. And finally, we'll finish up our discussion from last week on the second half of House of Cards' third season. Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and at the end, we'll answer a couple of questions from you, our listeners, as well. If you have any questions for us, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. So Fox's new show, The Last Man on Earth, is a comedy from Will Forte, executive produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who brought us the Lego movie. Last Man premiered last Sunday, and it premiered to higher ratings than anyone really expected it to. Uh, So first, I'll give you a little backstory. It stars Will Forte as The Last Man on Earth after an unknown virus wiped everyone else out. So the show begins in the year 2021 with Will's character, Phil Miller, traveling to every state across the U.S. searching for any sign of human life and praying to God that he will be sent a woman. And he finds no one and settles down in a mansion in Tucson, Arizona. And he eventually does come across the last woman on Earth named Carol, who's played by Kristen Schaal, but he's almost immediately annoyed by her. Let's just talk a little bit about 
the premise for this show. It's a little unusual to have this kind of apocalyptic scenario play out in a comedy rather than the zombie or horror approach we're, we're typically used to. And it could have gone so wrong, but instead it feels pretty refreshing for a comedy. What do you both think of the approach here, Margaret and Matt? I like it. I will also say, though, there was a comedy in the mid-90s called Whoops with no H, which irks me to no end, but just Whoops, <laughs> W-O-O-P-S, I believe, with an exclamation point. Yeah. Um, that was had a similar setup where a small group of survivors had endured an apocalypse and they were the last <laughs> people standing. So it's not the only show to ever Did that show do well? I think it had like half a season. Yeah. But I, for whatever reason, definitely remember watching Interesting. it. That's why I learned that Volvos were considered safe cars. <laughs> like one character survived by being in a Volvo. <laughs> I'm going to be the outlier on this. I, I just didn't get into it. I yeah. think I'm like the only person who didn't like the show. And I think it might be that I'm an aficionado of the zombie film. And I love a lot of kind of apocalypse and and castaway sort of movies, including Castaway, which he's watching, which I think is kind of a wonderful joke, all the business with the volleyball. But um I just to me this felt like the NPR apocalypse like I like it was too it was too gentle it was too polite and and I wanted it to be uh I don't know rougher with more of an edge I mean not that we need to see him like you know digging through piles of corpses or anything like that but it's just it just didn't register with me it felt too much like a Saturday night live sketch I guess Right I mean the show for anyone who hasn't seen it, there's no you don't see any skeletons. There's no dead bodies. It seems more like he everyone else has just been assumed into heaven or something. They're not there, but They've there's no raptured. there's no carnage or anything. Much more like the leftovers, I guess, than yeah. otherwise. Um, one of the things I liked is that it's not a wilderness environment, right? So yes. the kind of scavenging that needs to happen is pretty limited because mm-hmm. you know if you're the only person, the stock of a grocery store is probably going to be. Sufficient in More terms of canned fine. goods and bottled water and stuff. Uh, yeah. um, I think Phil's destructive streak is sort of interesting. Like, I liked how, you know, he's, like, blowing up cars because he can and who cares? And there's sort of yes. no value to anything. So why not line up fish tanks and throw bowling balls at them? I sort of thought that was fun. I, I mean, I'm not an aficionado of the zombie genre. And frankly... I think Walking Dead does a really bad job of exploring. Oh, they're not that. good at it either. No. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people are probably a little tired of that genre or it, it's been played out so much that this maybe felt like such a different take on it where you can kind of explore those issues of loneliness and human feelings that come out of being one of the only people left on Earth. I think maybe that was part of its appeal. I did like that part of it. and I And I did like the destructive streak, which reminded me a little bit of the part of Groundhog Day where he realizes that no matter what, that he can just kill himself over and over. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. got, it's got a little bit of that sort there of There is definitely a Groundhog Day vibe for me, especially because once you play around with that idea of like, oh, nothing I do has any value or consequence, you kind of drive that into the ground for ultimate sadness. And, and we do see <laughs> Phil attempt suicide on the pilot, right? So, or get very close at least. Um, and then sort of decide, okay, there's nothing of value but I am going to stay alive. Right. Right. And like being able to sort of go pretty far down that hole and then decide that reminded me a lot of the way Groundhog Day works where it's like, this is really fun. This is really horrible. Okay. This is what my life is. Just when I was thinking that I couldn't see how I could continue to watch this show for much longer, Kristen Shaw showed up and then everything was right. fine. She makes, I adore her. She makes, she totally completely changed the game for me in terms of the show as well. Like I, I think she makes it worth watching. She's and a kook. Yeah, she's. I think some people found her role to be a little annoying and like the nagging role, but I just thought she was weird, and I kind of liked 
like the more the more you see her the more you kind of like her and yeah she's got a great she's just got a great voice and anybody who's a bob's burgers fan already knows that <laughs> but i was watching the Mad Men pilot rewatching it not too long ago she's in that as one of the yep. switchboard operators oh yeah and and i'd forgotten that but then she opened her mouth it was like oh of course <laughs> i mean i think some of the sexual politics on the show are lacking right or they're just not my sexual politics and i find it you know, if you're going to be this imaginative about so many things, to be like, oh, yeah, and the woman's here, and she's a real drag. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, right. my God. Like, we've imagined this very elaborate, very unusual image of the future, and then it's like, oh, yeah, and a lady shows up, and she's such a pain in my balls, yeah. and I can't have any fun because <laughs> my mom's here. And it's just like, oh, my God. Like, that's your go-to. I, think, I do think that's ameliorated in later episodes, and right. I think we yeah. eventually see, especially as we sort of dig in harder on, like, Phil's inherent decrepitude, and suddenly it's not nagging, it's just like having dignity, right. and we sort yeah. of see that Phil has really lost sight of any kind of his, like, human identity. Um, and and Carol, he kind of looks worse in this situation where she kind of, you're kind of on Team Carol, I feel like, or that's how I felt. Or not like there's teams, <laughs> but, but like... <laughs> She's she's the she's the character I sympathized with more and I could understand her perspective better and how she's trying to deal with this terrible situation. Right. I also am sympathetic to the idea of, you know, how do we build comedy? And one way is going to be through conflict. And if we had somebody who was leading Phil's exact same existence, you know, then we just have two Phil's and I'm not sure what we talk about. Right. That would be. Yeah, that would be boring and nobody wants that. But but I there were a couple of points in this where I was thinking of a movie which got like eight people in the United States have seen, but it's called Last Night, and it was directed by Don McKellar. It came out about 15 years ago. And the idea is it's set on the last night of human existence. And you see that some people have gone completely crazy, like they're setting fire to things, they're looting, they're having sex on top of parked cars. But there are other people who are just going on about their business as if it was any other day. They're picking up the newspaper, they're walking the dog, they're, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Um, and that sort of tone, that kind of weird mix of like horrible, horrible, horrible darkness and sort of oblivious naivete is something I was sort of hoping that this show would have a little more of. Like, I felt like it was a little too much of one and not enough of the other. Because we are talking about the end of civilization here. That's all I'm saying. Like, I haven't, I don't feel the weight of that really sinking in in the way that I want it to. Because that's the topic they have chosen. We have a clip here that we're going to play from last night's episode, the third episode. Basically, Carol doesn't want to have sex with Phil unless she's married. So she organizes this elaborate ceremony and tapes herself speaking as the officiator at the ceremony. And this is where we are in this scene. Now it's the groom's turn. Well, you told me all I had to do was get the rings. I'll just speak from the heart. Okay. Yeah. Um, Carol? Yes? Uh, you seem like a good person. Thank We're gonna, uh, be married, you know? Uh, and... Yeah, that's it. Oh, I left a little more space here for you, so we'll just wait it out. <laughs> so, that was beautiful. Now for the exchange of rings. 
I remember when they go back to the house and the cake is there. I was like, where the hell did she get a cake? And then it's like, oh, it's a garbage pile. And I was like so relieved. Right? I was like, what? There's no cakes. This is bullshit. And then it's like, oh, it's like full of like weird canned vegetables. And I was like, oh, phew. Like, we're keeping up with the premise of the show. I'm- I like to picture you watching the show and there's a huge pile of shoes next to the, next to the couch that you can hurl at the set. Yeah. <laughs> First I thought that was going to be like a sexist joke about how many shoes I have. No, no. I was thinking more objects to hurl and yeah. In disgust. <laughs> Just an angry note on my notepad. <laughs> so, so the humor in that scene is a lot slower than what we're usually used to in sitcoms. There's these long stretches of silence. And just in general, the show kind of moves at this slower pace. It, it almost feels like it puts in all these montage sequences to, to speed things along. I mean, I think the show is effective. I'll also say it's three episodes. And I think early stretches of comedies are, this is something we'll talk about on the show a lot, very often not indicative of the overall right success yeah, of a show. That's true, and I have faith in these. I have faith in these producers. Right. I'll also say that as much as I enjoyed the wedding sequence, and I think it's interesting. I think Will Forte is a good actor, and I think he's really good in this role because, you know, am I supposed to be sad or am I supposed to be happy? Right. And then we're going through these motions of normal stuff. But it's not normal. This isn't what I want. And at the same time, what the hell else should I want? Right. So I think playing through that conflict and seeing that sort of register and go through Phil's mind of, well, what's my other choice? Right. Is go back to being by myself till I die and sort of watching that register and him sort of not come to terms with stuff. I'm not sure anyone on the show is able to come to terms with anything. Um, For me, the surprise and like the exciting part was that last scene where we where their car hits January Jones' car. It's like, yeah. okay, now I'm very nervous that it's going to be like the hot chick versus the nerd chick and like who right. wants to get boned or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's just like not a conflict I'm interested in. There's a title like, of the next Fox show. Let's <laughs> yeah. say don't be confused on your TiVo if you see Last Man Standing. That is a different show. I kept referring to this show as Last Man Standing. That show makes you wish it was the end of the world. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> that shows no good. Sorry, Tim Allen. Oh, Lord. So we're going to switch gears a little and talk about how Last Man ended up on the air in the first place. Rather than going through the traditional pilot process, Fox ordered this show straight to series, and then they basically put their trust in Forte and his team of writers. One of the show's co-executive producers, Andy Bobro, who wrote for Malcolm in the Middle and is best known for his many seasons working on Community, joins us talking to our TV reporter, Joe Adalian, about how Last Man came to be and the challenges of writing the show. And with that, I'll hand it over to Joe. Thanks, Gazelle. And uh, Andy, thanks for joining me. Uh, It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, uh, very excited. And um, so, you know, Last Man on Earth, the earlier signs are that a comedy that's weird and different uh, can work. Um, and a show that, you know, even Will Forte, who's your, your creator and showrunner has admitted he thought was for cable could, could be working on a network. I, I'm sort of wondering, let's just start by uh, talking about that. And, and, you know, is that a sea change in your mind for television? Yeah, I, I hope we, we all sort of hope that it's a sea change. I mean, I, I, I just don't know. I, I can, I have a hunch that everyone, and I made a joke about it on Twitter that like everyone's development right now is getting thrown for a loop because of this show launching so well and that there are probably people 
all over the studios uh, in LA going like, well, we need, what, okay, well, we need to, what is it that worked? Uh, post-apocalyptic, was that the thing that worked? Or was it uh, SNL? Do we need to hire an SNL star? Like, what are the ingredients that we can replicate here? And I'm not even sure anyone will. Uh, but I don't know. My gut tells me maybe not. I mean, there's always, the, the biggest shows on TV are still sort of mainstream concepts, uh, the procedurals and the well-executed multi-camera sitcoms. It's like the, it's hard to argue that okay, the only thing that works on TV now is uh, is breaking the mold. Um, there are four or five uh, ingredients that I, I think network executives and network presidents play with. Is the concept understandable? Uh, do I have a star? Is it an easy billboard? You know, what is the billboard going to look like? Um, does These it are things seem- that actually get discussed in meetings. Yeah, on my as a writer going into pitch things, I've often tried to talk about to, because maybe it's me pandering trying to talk their language. But I'm like, <laughs> this is a good billboard, you guys. Um, yeah, we were surprised by the. We knew when we were making the show that um, we that we had critics. We we knew for, almost from the beginning that oh, critics are going to love this. And the question is, will this be a critical darling that people don't watch? And uh, what a pleasant surprise by that launch. Oh, my God. And I think, but you know what, as the week prior to launch, as the week uh, progressed, what, we saw how much weight Fox was putting behind it. And we got more and more encouraged. And boy, this is a show that doesn't explain itself very well on a billboard. It's a picture of Will Forte. Uh, I guess, you know, I take that back. This show explains yeah, it has itself a real, I have, Yeah, right. I think it actually has a great line, like, what the hell is that? Yeah, what the hell is that? But uh, it, that billboard sure looks a lot better when it is when it is plastered full of quotes from critics. That's and true. Fox did a great job of doing that. And I think a lot of people tuning in were just like, "Well, uh, they say it's good. I'm gonna. It sounds interesting, you know." But yeah. uh, see, this is actually what I think. The, I think the, the good news with Fox is that they really embraced the show, and he, you know, the, the team there, the marketed, they got behind it in a huge way, even though they knew the odds weren't maybe didn't seem that great on paper. Let's not get into that. I want to dial back because you know, we only have so much time. I want to flash back a little bit to your getting involved in this show. Two questions. First of all, talk about the timing. I mean, you were on Community. Ideally, you probably could have come back for the Yahoo season if you had wanted to, uh, correct? Yeah, I had, I, I had a, well, my contract with Sony was about to end, so it would have, ha- we would have had to renegotiate. That was certainly a possibility. And I loved working with Sony. I had developed with them several things over the years, and it was a good relationship. So uh, that was a possibility. I was 99% sure that the show was canceled, the community was canceled. What was your first reaction when you actually did, I would imagine, before you took the job, you read the pilot, or had already read the pilot for Ass Man? Really, my only attitude, my only thought was, oh, thank God, there's another show that excites me as much as community. You know, I had sort of decided I'm going to, if Will wants to work with me, uh, I'm going to do that no matter what, no matter what the script is. Right. Uh, when I read, but also knowing Will and how weird he is, I just knew that it wasn't going to be ordinary. The idea of working on a mainstream show, it comes with a little bit of a downside, which is, am I going to be bored by this job? Can you talk about having worked on shows that have gone from pilot to series and all that? How did this sort of new template, which is a lot more like a cable model or a Netflix model, um, how did that sort of help in the development of the show and, and, and putting it together? Did you, did you notice a difference? Yeah, well, there was a big difference, and I'm not sure if it's because of this model or because the first thing they did was they assembled a small room of writers to work with Will to write six scripts. That was kind of the little secret about the show was, yeah, it was reported that it was ordered to series, but 
they were sort of saying behind the scenes, we really want to see six scripts. <laughs> we want to see how this reads. We had hoped to write the entire season before production started. We didn't quite get there. We squandered away a lot of that time, or we used it very wisely, um, trying things and, retry- and going back to the drawing board and, and rethinking them. You know, 30 Rock's one of the few examples I can think of where there was a star talent who also served as showrunner. So what, what, what sort of was that experience like and how you put everything together? You sort of talked about that before. but Will um, uh, is a really good writer in his own right. Before he became a performer on SNL, he had a pretty good TV sitcom writing career. Uh, so he knows the drill. He has a very idiosyncratic way of telling stories. It's mostly based on what scenes do I want to do that are going to be fun for me and that are uh, and that I can relate to emotionally. And so a lot of our work, you know, the, uh, us network TV people surrounding him, a lot of our work was basically taking what excited him and what he wanted to do and weaving and, and making it feel like a story. And he resisted a lot of that. Like he, his concept of a story was very different from mine at the beginning. And I've learned a lot from him because there's an emotional truth in what he does. And you can leave out a lot of details if you have if if your scenes make emotional sense. Yeah, you didn't you didn't need to explain or at least have it in the first two episodes, three episodes. Well, you know how did everyone die? It just it didn't matter, and then that's sort of a cool thing. <laughs> but I think that people who obsess over that. Um, but let's talk about that real quickly. We've got to for just a couple more questions. But I want to ask you about going forward. Uh, people have seen the third episode by the time this airs. Uh, but but. You know, you you the big shocker at the end of the, which is the end of technically the first episode, but for most people, they think of the midpoint of of the first episode, um, was when you introduced the fact that yes, he is the last man on earth, but he's not the only person on earth, and right. and and uh, there will be more cha- more things that come along too. Uh, can you talk in in vague terms about keeping this concept? going and broadening and how long do you think i mean how many stories do you guys have in you thinking about that it's still too early to talk about season two or three now but but how, <laughs> how do you keep the show going and how do you avoid I mean, it's, it it's it's a high degree of difficulty is it not and, and how do you think tell us how that's going to evolve over the season and potentially next season uh each episode feels a little bit like a pilot especially when an episode introduces a new character and you're like okay well now we got to meet that person find out their whatever uh, their backstory we want to use you don't have the comfort of saying like all right well it's these group of people who hang out in a coffee shop and uh, we know there's a goofball and there's a there's an uptight guy and there's a <laughs> a girl looking for love or whatever um what I can tell you with complete certainty is we've written 13 episodes, we've told 13 stories, and they're all great, and they tell, they sort of come to a seasonal conclusion. And so there's an arc happening. And what I love seeing online, this is the most exciting thing for me, is that when people saw the billboards and they were thinking about the show, there was a lot of chatter about, oh, they can't, how can they do that? They, you can't mm-hmm. do a series about one person. And I'm just sort of like thinking, well, just wait, just wait. And then, because we wanted to hide, we didn't want to spoil the arrival of Kristen Schaal. And so when, then she, when she arrived, people were saying, oh, I get it. It's a fresh take on the romantic comedy. Uh, it's, oh my God, it's this couple. It's the show's about this couple. Well, uh, keep, keep watching. <laughs> the show is about Will's character. The show is about Phil Miller. Um, and whatever else happens in the show, it's about him. And he goes through a lot. Uh, and as for season two, it's, I, I don't know. I'm terrified. I'm excited well, if we get it. one. Yeah. Uh, but I, I know want, I season one is great. 
Yeah. Um, Andy, Bobro, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the Vulture TV podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Great talking to you. Uh, Gazelle, back to you. Thanks, Joe. So the TV show we were discussing is called The Last Man on Earth, which airs Sunday nights at 9 Eastern on Fox. Let us know what you think. Tweet us at Vulture, visit our Facebook page, or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. We're going to pick up our discussion from last week on House of Cards, third season, and we'll be discussing the second half of the season right now. So if you haven't watched the whole season and don't want any spoilers, check out the description on the podcast to see when you should tune in again. We're going to play a clip now from episode 13, which is essentially Frank and Claire's breakup talk. We used to make each other stronger, or at least I thought so, but that was a lie. We were making you stronger. And now I'm just weak and small, and I can't stand that feeling any longer. All right. What do you want? What is the goddamn alternative? Please, Claire, tell me, because I don't understand. All I am hearing is, it's not enough. That the White House is not enough. That being First Lady is not enough. Not enough. No. It's you that's not enough. Margaret and Matt, what do you think of this ending? And what do you think Claire will do next? What could she possibly do professionally? What do you think? I like it a lot because one of my big complaints about this show has always been that uh, Frank always wins. Small battles, large battles, ultimately Frank always wins. And here, in a sense, he's kind of won again on, on various levels electorally, but this is a loss for him. This is this is something that stings, and I like that about it. And, you know, of course, I expect them to get back together. Because like, it's immediately. A it's right? a television I mean, show. The thing is, like, Frank's going to win again. Yes. Like, I have no... We're going to, like, have, like, a divorce... Like, that's no. not what's going to happen, right? No, well, she's going to. We're going to have to reach that. some sort of hot peace, basically, where <laughs> Claire will come back, but it'll be under duress, and there'll be like a negotiation. That's the, that's right? the opposite of a cold war. <laughs> yeah, that's think seventh grade social studies. It is. It's Don't fantastic. let anyone tell you you won't use that in the future. I, I never will. North Korea and model UN in middle school. <laughs> I still got it. A hot peace. Okay. Anyway, that's what I think will happen. <laughs> well, Margaret, you've, you've written about how you don't like them as much when they're apart. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think ultimately a lot of things on House of Cards remind me of things on other better, more interesting shows. And the part that's the most distinctive for me is that we have this, you know, anti-hero, insert the cartoon Z's coming out of my mouth right here. Um, <laughs> but unlike most of the other anti-hero shows we have, he does really love his wife. There's an early part where he says, like, I love that woman more than sharks love blood or something, right? Like, um, so that is distinctive. And we, I do think of them as equals. And I'm always surprised when people call her Lady Macbeth because, like, wait, no, Macbeth is a dumbass. And, like, Lady no. Macbeth is, like, the brains of the operation. Like, Claire and Frank are both brains of this operation. Um, yeah, there's a moment, actually, actually in the first season. If Maybe I'm remembering wrong, but I think Claire talks about the reason she's with Frank. And she says that he promised her that if you're with me, there, there, there will never, you'll never have a boring day or it'll be, you'll, you'll never not be excited. Something to that effect. And, and I think, you know, the establishing of her as somebody who seeks uh, glamour and excitement and, and a new surprise every day, that's 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 the essence of their marriage. And, and that and the fact that they're both a couple of vipers. Right. I mean, I think everyone on this show is equally likely to murder you, which is one of the things I don't <laughs> like, because everyone has the same deal, 
right? Like everyone, if you looked at a script that didn't have the characters' names in it, you'd have no idea who was saying what. Because many of these characters have threatened one, one another with murder or I have this dirty secret on you or like, you never loved this. You are just saying that for power. That's something every character has said to every other character at some point. So there's just like, to me, everyone is very much in this like similar pool and I think Claire and Frank's marriage is what made them stand out in the show is like this is one of the very few times where we see people who whose love is like credible to me in the way that I think a lot of the other romantic the show has plenty of other times where it tries to be or depict romance or sexuality and stuff and I just don't buy it the same way I buy their love yeah that's true and 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 I was reminded of Mickey and Mallory and Natural Born Killers where you know, they're psychopathic murderers on a crime spree, but they really do love each other. And at a certain point, you just have to buy that. Yeah. But you know? I mean, that's isn't that more interesting? Like, yeah. I'm at this point, I think we have a lot of stories about evil um, masterminds and the people who can always pull one over on everyone else. And like all the underlings are going to come crawling back someday and blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I'm not tired of those stories, but I'm very much le- even less tired of the story of how was your day? It's like, well, I'm this evil mastermind and all my underlings are going to come crawling back. And how you talk <laughs> about that with someone who gets it and you don't have to lie to them and you're not going to lie to them. And on a show where people are lying to each other very often, I think removing this sort of like truth bubble from the center of it is... You know, it just doesn't... That's not my dream for what happens on this show. It's a marriage of true minds. (laughs) Would you like it more if in the next season she doesn't return to Frank and she kind of goes and does her own thing and, you know, becomes a badass? I think she is a badass. I don't know. I mean, I don't... Like, I've... I'm, I would I'm, like to see. I would like to see, and it didn't even occur to me until this very moment. But I'd like to see this thing turn into a Star Is Born. <laughs> I'm serious. I'd like to see it become a Star Is Born in politics, where Frank is a little bit older than her, and and uh, what if suddenly his star is falling and hers is rising, and he becomes the puppet master, but he's aware that he's not out front anymore, and it bothers him. That could be interesting. You know, but I, I, I what I don't want to happen is a variation of the same old, same old, which is. Um, uh, everybody tries to to win against Frank, and Frank always wins. I, also um, think, I just think that gets boring after a while. I also think that the show's ability to participate in an economy of secrets is pretty terrible, right? Like with the whole like, oh, the journal page about your abortion. It's like I gave that to Doug to get rid of. It's like what? Like Doug's way of getting rid of it was just burning it. Like you could have done that yeah. at literally any point in the last many years right so (laughs) i thought you were taking care of this by literally just burning it with a match like a girl scout right like there's no so this is our amazing secret some people don't know how to do that let's be fair (laughs) okay i guess not convenient that he decided to hold on to it but this is the great way this is like the great vault or whatever so the idea of like oh yeah all their dirty secrets are going to come out it's like well this show doesn't do that well with dirty secrets right like their ability to maintain my interest in everyone's dirty secret is limited for me in contrast to like Mad Men where everyone's ability to maintain a secret is very interesting and the way that people hide or don't hide certain things is fundamental about who they are and how they see the world and we can think about the differences between characters in the way that how they keep a secret is different or how they keep a secret is the same right like for Don and Peggy their ability to keep a secret is identical and that's one of the ways that they're so similar even though in many ways they're not otherwise similar. and discovering which secrets you know to use that phrase economy of secrets which I like a lot like in this economy which secrets are really valued 
Yeah. There's that moment in the first season of Mad Men where uh, Pete Campbell goes to Burt Cooper with uh, knowledge of Don's secret. Don's shoebox, yeah. Yeah, and, the, and, and the response is a shrug. It doesn't matter. Right. He says he literally says, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. That that sort of a secret cannot be held over someone's head in that particular place, an advertising agency where, you know, money talks. Right. And I also think that tells you about what Bert's idea of a secret is. Yes. Right. And Pete's idea of a secret. And Pete has plenty of secrets and secrets he doesn't even realize he's keeping at various points. But I think on House of Cards, we basically know everyone's secret and it hasn't made them more dynamic or more interesting to me. What keeps me coming back to the show is the details of protocol, of, of what you're willing to put up with, what you're willing to stand, the compromises that you're willing to make in order to keep the machine moving forward. And the, and the episode where the Russian premier visits the White House is my favorite one of the entire season because, for one thing, it feels like a self-contained, almost little like a show within a show, but also because of Claire in that and the way that Claire, that, that the premier is, is putting all of this uh, pressure. He's needling her. He's flirting with her, and ultimately, uh, 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 kind of like being sexually assaultive to her. Really, I mean, she doesn't want to be kissed. And who the fuck kisses the first lady anyway? Can I say that? <laughs> okay. Although that episode did make me yearn for the Lord John Marbury episode of West Wing, where he's like <laughs> drunk and inappropriate and like always scamming on Abby and like never remembers who Leo is. Yeah. Um, and I thought a lot of the season was like a little bit West Wingy. I mean. Once you have the president go to church and desecrate a Christian artifact in some capacity, yeah. it's just like I was talking about this with my friend John. Does the West Wing exist in House of Cards? Like, has that been a show? Right. Because Colbert exists. Right. It's our world. Like they talk about mm-hmm. much more recent presidents than the West Wing ever does. But they does do. the show The West Wing exist to the characters on House of Cards? That's a good question. That's a good question. And if they were, then he never would have gone into that church. Right. Or you would expect the Secret <laughs> Service agent to run in and be like, oh, this is like some real West Wing shit in here, right? Well, that like... was great. That was one of Sorkin's greatest moments, the Two Cathedrals episode of the West Wing. And I really feel like after that, presidents cursing God, that, that should just be retired. Right. Be we're marked, talking about... Property of Eric and Sorkin, and they put it in a vault We're talking somewhere. about, like, arguably the best moment of a very well-known, beloved, excellent show. Like, you can't... It's like, oh, it's a horse head in a bed, but not like... Not like a Godfather thing, just like a different horse head in a bed. Yeah, right? it's like, it's you, like if you, you use can't the, have the president go to church and be like, "Fuck you, God!" Spit like throw garbage or whatever. Yeah, if and you're then ma- it's like, "Oh, it's not the West Wing. This is a totally different show. There's nothing to do with the West Wing." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like what? Like, you can't do that. I don't know. I thought that was kind of bullshit. So, can we talk a little bit about Doug because he was a large part of this season. He he got a lot of airtime, and Matt, you wrote about his whole how they approached his whole recovery narrative and how it differs from the more traditional ones we've seen because he's just so hopeless by the end. It, it made it really made the season of House of Cards for me. And I liked the season a lot more than you did, Margaret. But 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 this this end, uh, that the, the entire Doug Stamper arc for me kind of elevated the whole thing and made it my favorite episode for the simple reason, uh, my favorite season rather. Um, for the because simple, you love murder? Because I love murder. <laughs> no, because uh, the, the recovery, uh, the trauma and recovery narrative usually proceeds along very predictable lines. And in the end, it's about the community coming together and somebody learning something about themselves. At the very least, they discover a strength they didn't know they had before. Maybe they make a full, full, even miraculous recovery. Some, maybe they don't. But in the end, there's a sense of some forward moral progress, some sort of inner strength being revealed. And you don't get that here. Instead, it's this horrible nightmare version of that story. Like that, that coma, that horrible injury sort of activates something that's evil within this guy who's already moral, morally questionable. And I feel like by the end, he's reached a point of no return. Like there's nothing – I don't think there's anything that he could do 
that could make him less sympathetic than the point that he reaches at the end of the season. And it's sick, but I liked that. I thought it was something I haven't seen before, at least not on this sort of, quote, prestige TV level. I mean, do you think- at the end of last season, he was in a very similar spot, though. Like, he, it, I did think he was about to kill Rachel, right? He wasn't like, he's like, let's go for a ride. It wasn't like to Dairy Queen. Do you know what I mean? Like, he took her in the car towards the woods or whatever. She ran away for a reason. He basically kept her hostage for the whole season. Like, he's manipulated her. The first time we see Rachel um, and Doug interact, he, like, puts money in her mouth. Like, it's so degrading, you know? And... Doug was never a character I was like warm about, and that oh god is, no, that's that has not, nothing to do with whether I think he's interesting on the show. Of course he's interesting, yeah, um, yeah. But I didn't. I felt like this made it official. I mean, he 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 he. But like he literally her, has he, like, a chance to basically turn kidnapping her and like making her live and like like refusing to let her go to church or like let her live with her girlfriend and stuff. Like that wasn't enough. Like he had to just track her down and murder her after taking a trip to one store where he buys like chloroform and duct tape. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, what are you like? Oh, just stop and buy the murder store to buy my murder supplies. I, I, f- I felt tried like to show his humanity a little at least this season. I felt like the I felt like the shot of uh, the the cut from him driving towards her to him throwing dirt on her on her dead body in this open grave it just put a point it just put a period at the end of that sentence sure. I mean, there's and always been a, a hint that this guy there was something redeemable in this guy and i don't believe that there is anymore like my appetite for oh here's a story about murdering a sex worker like um, i've seen a lot of those you know right. like i'm right. not super pumped about it. i will say that watching him watching the van drive towards her was one of those like hard in your throat like oh mm-hmm. shit moments especially because when he let her go i was like thank god but also like mm, that seems yeah. cheery yeah. right like it <laughs> was like characteristically so huh. for this for like, this program you don't want doug to have this like oh my god what did i do like wake up doug you're better than this right like you don't like if that had happened that would have been so cheap and like unfair and so you, you know, hear his like inner a... voice, and for some reason, it's Cartman from <laughs> South Park. <laughs> oh, you guys, my body, I do what I want. Right? But like, like I, I don't know. I thought it was interesting. I was, I think, on just like a personal level, sad for poor Cassie, double S I E. Like, yeah, yeah. But I think the sort of Doug arc points at some of like the holes in the whole way that House of Cards hangs together. It's like, make me your chief of staff, and it's like, okay. It's like, P.S. I gotta go. You won't see me for a couple of days. You can't call me. You can't be in touch with me. I'm going to commit a murder. Like I got stuff right? like, to do. Like just the idea that he finally gets the position he wants, and then he's like, "Oop, time out." I know during the Iowa caucuses, that's when the president definitely <laughs> doesn't need his person or whatever, right? Like that yeah. to me, it was just like, ah, oh, this is like a little bit of bullshit. But at least Cashew is safe. Yes. <laughs> Whew, what a relief. <laughs> So the TV show we're discussing is House of Cards, and the full third season is currently available on Netflix. Let us know what you think. You can tweet us at Vulture, visit our Facebook page, or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. Before we go, we have time for one listener question. Our question this week is from Michael. Broad City started off as a lo-fi web series, and High Maintenance was recently purchased by Vimeo and seems to be finding a broader audience. What web series do you guys watch, if any, and do you see the form as a testing ground for the next crop of viable TV shows? I don't, I mean, it's tough because I think really good web series have a very different mode, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm unlikely to watch 
half-hour episodes of a web series, by and large. And I think most people making web series, due to a variety of constraints, are not putting up half-hour episodes. So in terms of like, oh, this is a good demonstration of your ability to write a television show, I'm not sure that it's a real apples to apples. That said, plenty of people are getting like noticed, I think, through web series. And, yeah. you know, it's as good a model as any. I think if anyone knew how to spot who can make TV, we'd all do it that way. But no one does. So sometimes it's stand-up comedians. Sometimes it's people you've never heard of. Sometimes it's people who started out as writer's assistants and move their way up through the rooms. I mean, there's not one way that TV writing happens or showrunners get made. I think in the scheme of Earth, I'm happy for people to make their thing. And I like the idea that your ability to have an audience is no longer... Um, restricted by who can put you on a network show, right? Like if your stuff is good and interesting, oftentimes it might find an audience. Not always, but sometimes. I don't envy the people who are making these 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 programs to the web, though, because there's so much television. There's so much television. It's got to be almost impossible to to, to get really an stand audience. Out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's hard enough to to get an audience if you're if you're an established television show. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment whenever, wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and I'll be here every week with Margaret, Matt, and Joe. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y.